Amen. I love worshiping the Lord. You know, I'm glad that you're, you're here this morning. Um, you know, some of you may be looking at that slide, and we're going to continue in the, the book of Malachi. And um, I want to say this morning, I just want to begin by saying that I'm glad that you're here today. And, um, you know, when we talk about money, sometimes we can get touchy about that. Uh, people are connected to their money and they get touchy when you start talking about it. But I want you to understand something. I want to try and teach the whole counsel of God. And so we've been in the book of Malachi and um, this is what is next in the passage. And uh, I love this because I'm able to teach here not just the parts that I like or the parts that are easy, but if God's word says it, then we need to hear it. And... um, you know, we're, we're not in a financial crisis at this time at the church. It's not why I'm bringing this message. I'm not trying to, to, to beat anybody up over their giving. All I'm doing is, is just telling you what God's Word says and teaching in that way, even in a time when things are good, so that we understand what God's Word says uh, concerning this. Um, I'll just say that God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. He owns it all. He owns all of it. I I think that's huge because what he truly desires is your heart. That's really what he wants is your heart because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, God and continued his call and the call that he continues in Malachi is to repent. He calls us to repentance and he calls to repent in this passage. And you may remember we've moved through the book of Malachi, the text of Malachi and in in the first and maybe the most important area that he was calling uh, the people of Israel to repent in was the area of their worship. He was saying you need to repent in your worship. And, And a second area of repentance was that of leadership. The third area that he talked about uh, needing repentance in was was the area of their marriages, because these men they were they were marrying pagan w- women and they were divorcing their their Jewish wives, and so he said they needed to repent of that. And the fourth area is also a change of heart, a a place of repentance. A change of heart was needed, and a change of practice, and that was identified in their tithes and their offerings. Um, My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use this in each one of our lives to challenge us so that that we would be obedient to what what God puts upon our hearts. But I want to read in Malachi chapter 3. I want to begin in verse 6, and I want to read down through verse 12. And so if you have your scripture and would open it up to the book of Malachi It's the the last book in the Old Testament, and um, we're going to read there in verse 6. And God's Word says this. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Bring, excuse me, verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you, it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. Father, your word says that if we will return to you, that you will return to us. And Father, we need you to return to us. All across this land, Father, we have not kept your statutes. We have not honored you. And Father, I pray for a great repentance upon your people that we would turn and we would come back to you. And God, that you would return to us. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Open our hearts, open our minds. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Lord begins his plea here by affirming uh, his immutability, his unchangeableness. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. You know, in Hebrews 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the God we serve. Understand that Jesus Christ is God in the human flesh. He came here for us. He came here. And I, I love that because when he says, I, the Lord, do not change, that means he's going to be the same today and, and yesterday as he was yesterday and, and forever. And, and I, I understand that because he's not changing. He's never changed. He's not going to change. And his unchangeableness is the basis for the entire message that, it, that we read in Malachi. The fact that God does not change. God has always loved his people and he always will. And so he calls them to return to him. It's like, it's like, you know, when, when, when the, the, the child does something wrong and, and, and the, the, the parent says, come here, child, come here, let me, let me, let me teach you, let me, let me talk to you about this. He desires that relationship and we need to understand that God cares about our relationship with him. And so when we talk about this, we talk about this passage, God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He speaks to us. We hear him speaking to us. So the, so the Lord called his people to return to him. And in the Old Testament, the call to repent was always a call to return to God. 
When, he, when, you, when you read the word repent in the Old Testament, it, it's a call to come back to God. Okay, and so, so when we read that, return to me and I will return to you. And that call was always needed because as the Lord says in verse 6, Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days from your father you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. See, when Israel asked how they were to return to him, the Lord pointed out their failure to bring their tithes and offerings. And from this passage, we can learn the purpose of tithing. You see, tithing, you may want to write this down, tithing recognizes God's ownership. Tithing recognizes God's ownership. And I just want to break this down and and, uh, just bear with me. Um, You know, the word tithe means a tenth, and it refers to the practice of bringing uh, the fruit, the, the first fruits, the first tenth of, of one's increase or income to the Lord. Giving a tenth of your increase, your income to the Lord. You know, Abraham and Jacob gave tithes as an expression of gratitude to God and as an acknowledgement of his ownership of all things. And later, tithing became part of God's law. It is written in the Levitical law. The Lord declared that the tithe belonged to him and it was holy to him in Leviticus 27.30. Now in this passage, the people were charged with robbing God. (laughs) How have we robbed you? (laughs) He says in tithes and offerings by not tithing. The term translated rob here is found only one other place in the Old Testament, in Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-two, And the word means to defraud. And it really, you know, if we, if we look up the definition of that, is, is to illegally obtain money from someone by deception. Basically deceiving someone out of their money. And so that is what he is accusing the Israelites of doing, was deceiving him out of his money. Okay, to defraud, to rob. And, and uh, the same word, the Hebrew word there, is the same word that Jacob's name comes from, the supplanter, the deceiver. And so it, it's interesting because, you know, the Lord's complaint is clear. By withholding their tithes and offerings, his people were denying the fact that he owned everything. They were denying that. It's like, well, I own this. This is mine. I don't have to give it if I don't want to. It's mine. But the reality is, is everything that we have, everything that comes into our possession belongs to him. He is the one that gives us the ability. He is the one who has blessed us in that way. See, God did not need their tithe. But they needed to acknowledge that they were managers and not owners. And there's a big difference in owning and managing. Big difference. Now this is called right here where I get into this part of the message. I'm going from preaching, so I'm going to meddling now, okay? Just so you know, don't be surprised by that. I'm going to meddle here a little bit. I mean, it's easy for us to say, oh, okay, I, I obey God. So the Lord says, let's get specific. How is your giving? Hmm, ouch. 
See, giving is one of the most fail-proof litmus tests of your relationship to God. Is how you give, what you give, when you give, how much you give, how little you give. It's a litmus test of your relationship to God. Understand that God's word says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. But we sure like to receive, don't we? And when it comes to giving, man, I don't know, God, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to give it all away. And on one, more than one occasion, this is, this is huge, on more than one occasion, Jesus linked a person's giving to eternal life. What? Yeah. You, th- you remember Zacchaeus, right? That wee little man, that wee little man was he. Zacchaeus, he climbed up in the sycamore tree. He was a wealthy tax collector. The Lord went to his house for lunch one day. And he got right with God. And his first recorded words were this. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Four times as much. His salvation immediately touched his money and his management of that money. And Jesus confirmed this formerly greedy man's conversion by saying, today, today salvation has come to this house. He connected what he gave with eternal life as a, as a measure of his relationship to God. See, I think that's huge. Now you contrast that with the story of the account of the, the rich young ruler. I mean, this guy had, had lots, he had everything. He, he seemed like such an eager person, potential convert. He, he comes running to Jesus, not walking. He comes running to Jesus and he says, what must I do, master, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, I mean, what a witnessing opportunity. <laughs> Jesus knew the man had an idol. He had a little G God in his life. And so he said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But it says that the man went away sorrowful. He went away grieved, unwilling to obey Jesus's words. But you know what? Jesus didn't run after him. Jesus didn't run after him and said, well, um, how about 10%? Could we, do, could we do 10% instead? No. No. This is what Jesus told his disciples. He says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You know, in Luke 16, Jesus states that our management of money is a test of how we will do with more important responsibilities. He says this, he says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? In the context, 
The very little thing is that the money is the money that God has entrusted to us. That's the little thing. The big thing, the much, the true riches are the souls of men and women. If we're not faithful in a little, he can't trust us with much. And you see, he's saying that the measure of our money and the management of our money that God has given us as the owner has given us to manage this money, if we're not managing it well, then why would he trust us with human souls? Oh, we pray for revival. We pray for a harvest. But maybe we're not being faithful in the little. Maybe we're not being faithful in that way. And he can't trust us with the much. See, our use of money is God's test as to whether he can trust us with souls or not. See, we can impress other Christians by our extensive Bible knowledge. We can impress other people by our fervent prayers or maybe even our years of service to the church. But God doesn't look at any of those to test our faithfulness. Rather, God looks at how we manage the money that he has entrusted to us as a measure of our faithfulness to him. So I ask that question, are you greedy or generous? Do you have integrity in money matters? Are your priorities and motives for earning and spending and saving and giving in line with God's word? Because this is what he requires. I will say, just pull over and park here for a moment. I will say that those who usually give the least generally complain the most. If you find yourself griping and complaining about Christ's bride, about the church being critical of of the church staff or leadership, maybe you need to return to God and start giving back to him because I am sure that his grace and his love will sweeten you up. I think it's, it's, it's huge. So, so to evaluate God's charge that we have robbed him, we have to examine the, the management of money in our own lives. I mean, maybe you're thinking, whoo, I'm off the hook because I give 10% to the Lord's work. Well, maybe you are off the hook and maybe you're not. I mean, it may shock you to learn that 10% is not the biblical standard for giving. I mean, Abraham once gave Melchizedek 10% of his spoils from a single battle, but there's no indication that he regularly gave 10%. One time, he gave 10% from one battle. That's the record that we have. Jacob promised to give God 10% if God would do what Jacob wanted him to do, but that's hardly a biblical model for giving, trying to conjure God into doing something. You see, the law of Moses prescribed several tithes that would have amounted to somewhere between 20 and 25%. This was in the law of Moses. But in Israel, the tithe functioned as more of an involuntary tax than a free will offering. See, I believe that it's significant 
I'm going somewhere, so stay plugged in here. I believe it's significant that tithing is never mentioned in any instruction to the church, although much is said about giving. If the church is supposed to give 10%, it seems strange to me that Paul did not mention this when he wrote to predominantly Gentile churches and and teaching them what it means to be a church and what that's supposed to look like. He never mentions it to any of these other churches. And they would not have been familiar with the law of Moses. See, people get nervous when you take away that 10% figure. Somehow, it's comfortable and it's simple for us to give 10%. But the problem with tithing is that people get the notion that (laughs) once I've paid God off, once I've paid God what I owe him, then I can do whatever I else want with all the rest of it. The other 90%, I can do whatever I want with it. I can squander it, I can do whatever. But I think God would charge such people, no matter how sincere they might be, that maybe they are robbing God. I mean, you may wonder, well, if I don't tithe, then how do I determine how much I'm supposed to give? You see, the New Testament principle is this, is that God owns it all. God owns it all. We just manage it for him. And the New Testament standard is to give generously and cheerfully as God has prospered you. Out of gratitude for his indescribable gift. You have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You have the best thing that there ever could be and it all belongs to him. It's kind of like a... (laughs) God, our Father, has a big box of crunching munch. He gives us that box. And he says, hey, you want to share some of that with me? And we're stingy with it. We're like, no, I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to give you any. You know what? It's so sweet. When my granddaughter, you buy her an ice cream, and she offers you a bite of it. It's like, oh, how precious. She wants to share it with me. Wow. Wow. I love that. She's enjoying it and she wants me to enjoy it. It's no different when we give generously because God has prospered us. He's given us an indescribable gift of salvation. You know, for those who are are very tight and very poor, uh, 10% may represent generous sacrificial giving. For those who have ample salaries, 10% may be robbing God. See, I I believe that John Piper's teaching on this is sound. He said that Christians ought to live with a wartime mentality, gladly making personal sacrifices to advance Christ's cause. I mean, we expect the missionaries that we send out to live sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. Shouldn't we hold ourselves to that same standard? Secondly, I would say this, and I know this is going long, but stick with me. I'm going somewhere here. Tithing also proves the goodness of God. Tithing proves how good God is. I mean, the Lord makes an unusual invitation to his people in verse 10. 
He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. This is the only time that God ever says, test me in this. It's the only time that he says, prove me wrong. Bring your tithes, bring your offerings and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so that it overflows. I mean, right there, we have God's word on that. I mean, I presume that the people in Malachi's day were giving something. It wasn't that they were giving nothing. They just weren't giving what they should have been giving. And I think that's big because the promise is to bless those who brought tithes and offerings. Again, I, the Lord, do not change. His promise is still good. That if we will honor him, that he will pour us out a blessing. To be more specific, he promised to ensure that their fields would produce abundant crops, that their, their grapes wouldn't fall off the vines. And, and, and one res, result of, of such prosperity was, was in verse 12, that all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. See, don't disconnect the things that are going on in our country. Don't disconnect the things that are going on today. Our God is a mighty God. Our God is still in control. The things that we see, he is allowing to happen, probably because he is calling his people back. Come back to me. Repent and come back to me. Oh yeah, you got supply chain issues? You got this, you got that? Yeah. It's not just the guy sitting in the White House. God is allowing this. And the reason is he cares about our hearts. When will we as a people humble ourselves? When will we come to him? I mean, contrast this, this blessing that he gives in, in, in verse uh, 12 with, with the one in verse, the, the curse in verse 9, where he says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. I mean, robbing God carries the sentence of God's curse. But understand this, listen. <laughs> All crime is dumb. But robbing God is really dumb. I mean, think about it. He knows. Who are we kidding? He knows. Because he knows that we're guilty and we cannot escape his sentence. But God is saying, if you have robbed me, we must return to him and give obediently to his kingdom purposes. We cannot separate. We cannot separate relationship from obedience. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15. In other words, you cannot be living in disobedience to God and say, I, I love God. I love Jesus. You cannot be living in disobedience and say, I love Jesus or I'm under grace. That would be like me telling, telling you, I love my wife, Tracy, and totally cheating on her. You cannot say, I love God and be disobedient to him. The relationship and the obedience go together. 
I mean, love for my wife, my relationship with her is completely integrated with my obedience to my marriage vows. My wife does not want her husband to be a kind of faithful or partially faithful, sort of faithful. She wants me 100% faithful. That's what her Bible says too. You know, it, it's amazing because somehow we think that, that we can be partially obedient and, and God's good with that. But partial obedience is disobedience. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And I presume they were giving something. They just weren't giving what the Lord required. They weren't obeying completely. (laughs) They were like folks who salve their conscience by dropping a few bucks in the offering every once in a while. But they definitely weren't being faithful managers of all that he had entrusted to them. See, partial obedience isn't real obedience. Partial obedience is just convenience. I mean, if I got audited on my income taxes, I wouldn't fare very well if I told the IRS agent, I pay most of my taxes except when it's inconvenient. That wouldn't fly very well. Or if your children only obeyed you when it was convenient for them, you wouldn't call that obedience. But for many Christians, giving 10% would be a huge increase. Tithing is not all that difficult. Here's the problem. You must budget and be disciplined to do it. But it too can become a routine matter. See, if God requires that we give as he has prospered us and that we seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness by laying up treasures in heaven. That's a different matter than just giving. It means that I constantly must examine my heart motives and the management of all that God has entrusted to me. And I need to judge myself in this area, not by the standards of the world, but by the standards that God has put in his word. See, we should all ponder often the words that that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. He said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. I mean, what could make that much difference? Obedience. Obedience. Should a Christian tithe? Yes, I believe so. I believe in the tithe. Tracy and I have tithed for many years, not legalistically, but not even out of a sense of duty or obligation. But the New Testament guideline is this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each one must do just as he has proposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm going to be wrapping this up in just a moment. Stick with me. See, I believe that a Christian should begin with the tithe and then grow beyond that to the point of generous and abundant giving. 
And if we do that, then the purpose for the practice of tithing will have been fulfilled. It's a spiritual discipline. It causes us to be disciplined with our money, our finances, the things God has entrusted to us. See, we stop robbing God by returning to him and giving obediently to his kingdom purposes. I mean, God doesn't say, return to keeping my law. What he says is return to me. Come back to me. See, when we have sinned, the root need is always relational. Not just an outward conformity to a rule or to a law. What did David say? He said, I have sinned against God. See, it's the relationship that God cares about. It's not the the keeping of the law. It's the relationship. And that, that relationship is best manifested by what we give. See, the motive for obedience, whether in morals or giving or whatever area, should always be love for the Son of God, for Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me put it this way. How would my wife feel? How would my wife feel at Christmas time if I gave her a present and she thanked me for it and I responded with something like, I was just doing my duty as your husband. Even if it were a super nice gift. I mean, even if it was a super nice gift, my loveless motive would kill the joy of the gift. But you see, if my relationship is right with her, then the gift will not be a duty. It will be a joy and a delight. If you're not giving generously, if you're not giving systematically, if you're not giving sacrificially to the Lord out of love and gratitude to him, then you need to return to the Lord. Get your relationship right and giving becomes a joy and a delight. The problem is, is our relationship with him. And so we begrudgingly give out of duty And it kills the joy of giving. God desires us to to have his joy, his abundant joy. And when we give out of love for him and out of our relationship with him, it's like the the father of the prodigal son. God is ready to run to us and, and to graciously forgive us and to restore us. If only we will return to him. Are you guilty? Of robbing God? I'll leave you to wrestle with that before the Lord. Not just this week, but every week as God prospers us. It's a battle that we become a faithful manager of what he is entrusting to us. See, God says, return to me and I'll return to you. What if he's saying, return to me and I will return to you? Trust me more than you trust this. And I will bless you with an abundant harvest of souls.
See, I believe it's got to start right here. And it's got to start right now. Let's, as a church, surrender it all to him this morning. I mean, there's no God like our God. He's mighty in power. His love is strong. And his grace is free. Let's pray. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. And I I pray, Father, that as our worship team comes and leads us, Father, even into a deeper walk with you, I pray, Father, that you would return to us as we return to you. Father, that your promises are true, that we would lay it on the altar for you. Father, we know that we have not been faithful in all that you've put in our hands. Father, we know that we've not been good managers and we've mistakenly thought that we were owners. And Father, we need to repent of that. Father, I pray that this morning that there would be a great repentance that falls upon us. That as your Holy Spirit convicts us of the truth in our lives, Father, that our relationship would be front and center. And God, that we would care more about you and what you are doing than about us and our stuff. And God, that we would give you the honor and the glory that is due your name. Father, I pray that we as your people would humble ourselves before you in repentance for the things that we have done to harm our relationship. But Father, I pray that you would be in and through it all. Father, that your word is true. Your promises are true. And God, there is nothing, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can't do, that you can't restore, that you can't forgive, that you can't heal and make whole. And I pray that would be true for each one of us today. And we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.